You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to this episode of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. There is an oft-quoted statistic that about 70% of organizational change programs fail to meet their objectives. This sobering fact actually comes from McKinsey research of a few years ago. And, of course, it invites the question from executives, is there anything we can do to radically increase the chances that our change program will succeed? The good news is that, yes, based on years of additional research and experience, we can say categorically that there is a way to flip the odds. The methodology is laid out in a new book, Beyond Performance 2.0. The book is actually a thoroughly revised and updated edition of the original Beyond Performance, reflecting a decade of additional research into the science of organizational change. To find out more, I caught up in Chicago with the authors of Beyond Performance 2.0, McKinsey senior partners Scott Keller and Bill Shanninger. So, uh, Scott and Bill, you've both done this before, but welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks Thank for you for having us. us. You've written a book about organizational change, change management, and I think you would concede there are a lot of books out there on this topic. So, why add to the pile? You know, the, the promise of transformational change, which people use as a phrase often, and what do they really mean by that? You know, one analogy we use from nature about what people are trying to get at is the analogy of the caterpillar to a butterfly. And, you know, why is that transformational change and not just change like you change your tires, you change your shirt, you change your shoes? And the key thing we think about in that kind of transformational change environment is, you know, you think about a caterpillar to butterfly, this thing can't go back. To achieve change on the order of magnitude where it truly is a fundamental shift in how an organization operates that's self-perpetuating and self-improving upon, that just from a professional standpoint, to help organizations and to help human beings achieve that level of change, that gets really exciting. And that's the type of change we're talking about in the book. You know, everyone sets out for caterpillar to butterfly change. And you look at 10 people in a room and you say, great, you're, you're going to go do this. Oh, by the way, seven of you are going to kind of waste your time. It's not good enough for our clients. It's not good enough for humankind is sort of an underlying ethos of what we have. And so our our view is, is there something new under the sun to share in the space? And we think there is. So why this book amidst all that is because it actually says something different and something that we know works. Right. There's this number gets kicked around a lot, but like rule of thumb, 30% of, uh, you know, big change efforts succeed. 70%, frankly, don't meet the targets. I mean, that's what you're talking about when you're talking about the the numbers and the success rates. We are. There's a known set of things, it's not mystical, that you can get that number of likelihood of success up closer to 80, right? But, you know, it's not easy. It does require, you know, resilience and stick-to-itiveness. And it also, it's not simple. Like, oh, one bullet's going to fix it. And the more units you have, you have more people identifying with something smaller and smaller pieces that isn't the overall entity. And now you're trying to get all these people to do something different. So at its core, there's the meta change, which is the organization has to be faster. It has to make more money or it has to spend less or it has to come out with new product lines quicker. All those sorts of things that are normal. One step underneath that, you go, oh, wait, we do have like 200,000 employees in 50 countries. How are we going to get them to do this? That's the essence of it, right? The essence that the organization itself, while an interesting construct, 
works or fails, whether or not you get every individual in the organization to think and behave differently in a sustained manner in pursuit of something common. Yeah. Right? That part, that's the hard part. So just to clarify, because it's quite a big claim, and we think that if an organization follows the approach outlined in the book, they can get their odds of success up from the 30% to closer to 80%. I would say we are reporting the facts when we say that. The answer was 50%, or if the answer was 33%, we would be bound to report the facts. So we are saying that, absolutely. The type of research we've done now over a decade, 2,500 organizations, you know, had I stayed in academics and not joined McKinsey, I would have been the toast of academia for this data set. And these findings are they're spectacular in a way that says, hey, actually, there's an interesting relationship here. So let's get to the, to the meat. What's the big idea? The big idea, if you want to see an increase from the 30% success rates to the 79% success rates, if you want to see caterpillar to butterfly results in terms of your change management, is to what we call put equal emphasis on the performance and the health elements of the change program you're leading. Now, let me talk about each of those. Uh, first, on the performance side of things, this is what you're doing to deliver the operational and financial results that you're looking for. If I use a manufacturing example, this is what you're doing to buy things cheaper or of higher quality. It's what you're doing to make them into something else um, more efficiently or more effectively. And it's what you're doing to sell them into the market and service them better than you would have before. The changes you're making to your operations broadly defined. Absolutely. And it's really you know the what of yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. Now, they, I mean, most leaders can get their head around that and say, yes, I, I know what I want to do when I take over this department or this business or this company in terms of what needs to be done to improve performance. What doesn't often happen is that they put equal emphasis, time, effort, rigor, into the health side of the change. What's the health side? The health side is how do I align the organization on the direction we need to go? How do we execute in that direction with minimal friction in the system? And how do we create a sense of meaning and renewal that fuels and perpetually improves the organization as we go? So if performance is kind of the buy, make, sell, then health is the align, execute, renew sides of the change. And what organizational health is, is it's a way to measure and manage that alignment, execution, and renewal as you're doing the work of the what. And quite frankly, in an integrated way, which is what we'll get into when we talk about the methodology. Most leaders, by the way, when you share that with them, intuitively they're kind of like, yeah, I mean, of course we need to align the organization on the direction. We need to execute without friction in the system. Yeah, you got, you got to address the people stuff. Yeah, we got to do that. But do they... If you ask them, well, what would you do with 50% of your time if you're going to do that stuff? After town halls and memos, most people run out of like, well, I don't know. Which is where Beyond Performance 2.0 comes in is because it's a toolkit and a playbook for how do you manage the people side of the equation with equal discipline and rigor to how you'd manage the what or the performance side. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the change journey. In the book, you describe it as being basically in five phases or, or stages. Just elaborate on that a little bit. Any change journey typically follows kind of an S-curve, and that journey can be broken up. And we break it up into five stages. The first stage is the aspiration stage, and it's, you know, where are you actually trying to go? It sounds pretty basic, but you got to have an answer both on the performance side, what are our strategic objectives, and on the health side, what are our health goals? It's less clear to a lot of leaders on how do you set health goals. But once you've got that, you've got a great kind of light on the hill, if you will, and that's our aspiration. 
what's an often missed step and why our change journey has five steps instead of three, which a lot of them do. A lot of times you'll hear, you know, hey, diagnose, design, deliver. Um, once you have that light on the hill, it's absolutely imperative that you take stock of your change readiness to go there. The skill and will of your organization or the capabilities and mindsets is the way we talk about it. That gives you a lot more information in terms of what you're going to need to do when you get to step three, which we call the architect stage. In the architect stage, you're actually creating the plan. And then you've got what we call the act stage, which is the fourth stage. Now, that stage actually takes most of the time. That's the steep part of the S-curve. You're actually doing those things you plan to do or you're building the blueprint that you created. And you are asking people to ride the bike while they're changing the tires. You are asking them to do more. So there's a lot of work to be done in that act phase in terms of being able to adjust as you go and to be able to manage the energy during the process. So that's stage four. And you get to the fifth stage, which is, again, why we have five often missed, which is as you get to the top of that S-curve, you know, many change programs have a pretty big infrastructure to help drive them because this is an extraordinary act of increasing the metabolism of the organization. So there are PMOs or transformation offices. There's a whole set of infrastructure. There's a whole set of the way communications work. To just dismantle those and to kind of let everything go back to where it was is typically a recipe for that S-curve not to look like an S, but to look like a mound. Things will revert back to the way they were before. To thoughtfully transition into a stage of continuous improvement is what that advanced stage, that last stage does. At the end of that fourth and fifth stage, you're looking back and saying, actually, we've, we're permanently changing the operating model. We're permanently changing the cadence and tenor and tone of management meetings and who gets to be in management. Right? It is as close as we can get to the, you know, to the switch to the butterfly because you dismantle all the old stuff. So let's assume I've, I've done my aspiration both on the, the performance side and on the health side. I've got a sense of where I want to go, the kind of critter I want to be as an organization. What goes into that second stage? Stage two is really the crux of why we believe we achieve truly transformational change in that caterpillar to butterfly sense. It's that step two that when missed, people miss the opportunity for that fundamental shift in how an organization approaches work. If you lay out the scale of the change that's necessary on the performance side, and some of the things that you should be doing seem obvious, then we should ask the question, why would an otherwise well-intended person not already be doing it? You could have the people who are buying the equipment in procurement talk to the frontline operators who are using the equipment in the field. <laughs> you get a blank stare and you're like, oh, why would we do that? Right? And so this idea of mindsets and prevailing sentiments, if you think about when people behave, you know, they're not robots, right? They are all trying to solve for something. But particularly when you get to the lack of adoption of things that seem obvious, it does tend to break into things where it's not clear to them that they're allowed to do it, where they don't believe that they can, either through time or resources, which is really just saying a priority thing, or they don't want to. And sometimes the want-to stuff is really sticky and it's intractable. And you know, Scott has a spectacular way of doing this with top teams where we can tease out some of these I don't want tos because that gets into the world of power, influence, legacy, relationships, right? Just, uh, you know, wanting, wanting to be liked and accepted. Those things, boy, there's a lot of smart people who've been derailed by those things. Do, do you find that senior exec CEOs are, are often reluctant to tackle mindsets? Yes, we find that's the case. And because it's typically the one they feel less equipped to add value or drive uh, in terms of knowing what to do. It also feels a bit like, are we just kind of putting our employees on the couch? 
and being armchair psychologists here. However, once they're introduced to a robust toolkit, there's an interview technique called laddering, which is used. There's a number of focus group techniques that leverage visual cues as opposed to kind of traditional, let's just talk about it type things that really surface underlying thought processes. There's also a whole level of, they call it QDA, qualitative data analysis. Most people are familiar with word clouds. That's a very simple version of qualitative data analysis. You can run a number of analyses that can give you lots of good cues and good evidence for what underlying mindsets might be in an organization. And then the last thing, I think, when you play it out for leaders, just in terms of practical, how does, how does this actually work and why would you tend to it? Most leaders are on board right away. Let me give you an example. Let's say your strategic objectives are, we want to double share price. How are we going to do that? We're going to cross-sell more, bring the whole firm to our clients or the whole company to our customers. Essentially, that's the strategy. Great. That's your strategic objective. What are your health goals? Let's just say the analysis takes you to health objectives are, let's increase customer focus, let's get more knowledge sharing, and let's improve how we do performance management. Those changes to how we run the place, that'll make the biggest difference. Okay, we just finished the Aspire stage. Now, in that assess stage, on the performance side, you're going to assess capabilities. Do we have the capabilities we need? If not, where can we get them? And you're going to get really sharp on that. But let me go to the health side, because this is the mindset piece. And when you play this through, okay, what would most companies do if they just went straight to action, if they need more knowledge sharing? Most companies would look for, well, who are the companies who do this well? They would find that most of those companies have a large information infrastructure, like kind of a, a portal that you can upload data yeah, on, no, download data So that on. knowledge management. Totally. Like so they would invest hundreds of millions of dollars, potentially, building this knowledge infrastructure. What would most companies do for performance management? Similar. They'd look who's best practice. They'd find that the years of the annual performance review and long-winded forms are done, so they would go to much form light, regular basis conversations, and they'd say, okay, that's going to really help us on performance management. Customer focus, they'd say, well, what a great customer focused, you know, sales oriented, cross sell oriented organizations do. They have salespeople who profile customers really well and understand their needs. And by the way, they also know the product set really well. And so they match those two. And so let's build scripts for our salespeople to ask the right questions and let's educate them on knowledge. Okay, that's going to cost a ton of money to do all that. It's, it might be the right thing to do, but to Bill's point, why are smart, hardworking, people who are generally well-intentioned not sharing knowledge today. You do the laddering interviews. You do the focus groups using some visual cues and different techniques. You do the QDA, and pretty quickly you find, wow, here's the way people think. They might not consciously think it, but they're introduced into and indoctrinated into a culture where the mindset that predominates is that knowledge is power. If I share my knowledge, I lose my advantage. If I share my knowledge, I find places for other people to you know, poke holes and see what's going wrong. So my goal is to not share any knowledge. My goal is to use the knowledge I have to actually let my performance be better than the next person. Now, if you put in a big knowledge management system and the mindset is knowledge is power, people will give it lip service. They'll, they'll fulfill the KPIs of, I submitted three things last month, and they'll never share anything of value. And they'll never draw on it for anything because they'll know it's useless. Now, if you shifted the mindset to your power in the organization is proportional only to the extent to which you share your knowledge. If that was the mindset, you probably wouldn't need the technology infrastructure. You probably would have people self-organizing into centers of excellence saying, hey, let's share how we do this purchasing thing across the world. Let's share best practices. They would find out who knows what and they would get on the phone. Now, you still might put in a system, but it's a completely different result. And just short form, let me take the other two just because it really brings it to life. Performance management. 
if people think, you know what, giving people real feedback is a, a fast track to destroying relationships, no one wants to hear it. So I'm not going to be the person who's going to do that. I want everyone to like me because that's my ticket to get. Mm -hmm. That's a totally different mindset than a mindset that says real relationships have a foundation of honesty. And that's the only way to establish real trust with people. And if you approach a performance review with that mindset, it kind of doesn't matter what the forms are. It doesn't matter. Like, it's just going to be a different conversation. Salespeople, you know, if people believe their job, and there are people who believe this is their job, my job is to give the customer what they want. It's not a bad mindset. Smart, hardworking, well-intentioned person could very well believe that, and that's kind of their operating system. Great salespeople, my job is not to be a subordinate to the person across from me, to kind of be the order taker, to give them what they want. My job is to add value in this conversation, so my job is to help them understand what they really need. I don't need a script if that's my mindset, because I will ask all of the questions that the company wants me to be asking, and I will find out the product information. So as soon as you get into this mindset realm, you get to the root cause of why smart, hardworking, well-intentioned people aren't already behaving in the way that you want them to behave from a management practice standpoint, and you've unlocked the key to transformation. Because if you can shift that mindset, people can't go back. Okay, but the, the downside of this is once you've unlocked the uh, Pandora's box of mindsets, then you've got to change those mindsets. So let me put this to you, Bill. When you come to the stages that follow, uh, when you come to the architect and act, what's the trick? Actually, how do you change mindsets across an organization? That sounds like a mighty hard challenge. I think one of the things that Scott was getting at there is that once you unlock it, you can't unknow it. You have to do something about it. It's also, you're not doing 20 of these. Right, so in that case, you know, actually really understanding, knowing what everyone knows was important because you'd, you'd work on that one. You know, I spent a ton of time with heavy industrial companies where capital allocation and capital productivity was important. And we discovered that along their seven-step beautiful process was seven steps of padding. What it really came down to when you teased it out was it was better to be predictably mediocre than it was usually brilliant and occasionally really wrong. And if you were to look at that kind of idea, a normal distribution of performance, which was be aggressive, push for what you really can, drive for value, drive for reliability. And every once in a while, because it's a distribution, by math, you're going to have something on the other side of the tail. That should be okay. But we condition people this way. No one rolls into your employment and is automatically thinking that way. They're conditioned. So you said, how do you architect it? The essence of architect on the health side, you know, of framing that we call the influence model, it's really simple. People have traits. That's who they are. It's their personality, it's their, it's their competencies, it's their aptitude, that's all there. Then they go into an environment. That environment is created by you. You, the people who run the place. Right? And those two things come together and it creates a state. And state increases the likelihood that you're gonna behave in a certain way. Now, that's the psychobabble part of it. But architect is about creating an environment that dramatically increases the likelihood that you will change how you think and behave. So that's why you pick a relatively small number of these. Management practices, the ethos you want adopted, stated mindsets that you'd like to be brought forward, and you say, okay, what's the best way we know how to change this environment? Four pretty simple buckets. Really help people understand why you're asking them to do what you want them to do, why it's important, and make sure you stick with it till they actually have some conviction. You don't need people you know, singing from the rooftops right out of the gate. You do need to have it enough, though, that when you're not watching, they're going to try it. They're going to do it. Adoption, big deal. Storytelling is a big part of this. So is making sure that they hear the story 
with an ear towards something that matters to them, their sense of meaning. You know, it can't just be about the stock price. For many people, it has to be about customers, the community they're in, their colleagues, their business unit. It might even have to be, what does this mean for me? There is a whole lot of rules in a workplace, the formal mechanisms, the operating model, the processes, the systems. But in short, it's how resources are allocated and it's how decisions are made. Who's involved, how fast, and with what repercussions. If you want people to change their behavior and change about what they think is important, make it easy to comply. So many times we'll say to people, I want you to act like an owner, be entrepreneurial. And then you force them to get 12 signatures to hire an assistant. That would be inconsistent. That is an early, early proof test for the employees of the organization to look at leaders and go, you're actually not serious. Okay, so that's the first two. Understanding and conviction, formal mechanism. Then we think about, do they have the skills they need? Most people look at something and go, well, if I put forth the effort, how likely is it I'm going to get the result that they want and I want? What's the reward I'm going to get or the outcome? And does that mean anything to me? Most people don't want to run into brick walls. And they want to believe that the work they're working on is important, is material, the outcomes matter. And by the way, they have a chance in heck of being successful, right? The beauty of that, of course, is people also don't want to think it was a Hail Mary in American football parlance. They don't want to think it was chance. If it does work, they want credit for it. They also don't want Mission Impossible, right? I mean, find a balance. This is where, interestingly enough, we talked about formal mechanisms. Beyond the process of target setting, the actual target is hugely impactful to motivation. Strong enough to be stretched, strong enough to show it's new and matters, not so far out that people, the minute they see it, go, well, that's not mine, that's crazy, right? You have to believe like you have a chance. Last one, role modeling. And this one, actually, in between the two books, we've learned quite a bit about. Because I would say that historically, we've been disproportionately focused on the value of the cascade, the leader, change leaders. They're still all very important. But increasingly, as we are a, a workforce comprised of a generation that has a lot of their actions that are digitally based, we've had to come to grips with the idea that influencers and opinion leaders and people in the social network, their role modeling matters way more. So you still need the formal leader to set out the North Star, but the validation cycles and the encouragement cycles are, are also coming from these influencers, right? And so being able to know who's in that and who matters, it's a huge deal to generating real role modeling reinforcement saying, hey, this matters, we're going to do it, and you should do it too. So those four elements of the influence model, understanding and conviction, reinforcement and formal mechanisms, giving people confidence and the skills that they need, and then the role modeling, you put those two, three, four things together, we think we can address a small number of critical mindsets. It's, it's doable, it's knowable how to do it. It's important that all of those be done in concert. And let me run the analogy of a soccer game, football to our international folks, and uh, an opera house. So let's say on Friday night, you go to the opera house. And during the best part of the performance, a big crescendo at the end of the, the opera. And what do you do in the audience to show your appreciation? Well, you likely give a genteel clap. Now let's go the next night. You're at the soccer finals when your favorite team's playing and they were tied. And you know what the time is about up. You know, a fullback steals the ball and makes a fullback run and does this amazing cross over towards in front of the goal. And it's this big header and it doesn't actually go in because it hits the crossbar, but then it bounces off the back of one of the other team's players and then it's in the goal and your team wins. And what do you do at the best part of the performance? Probably not a genteel clap. You're going to be jumping up and down, throwing your cup, hugging, high-fiving, whatever. What if you had that behavior in the opera house at the best part of the performance? Well, you'd never do it. Why would you never do it? 
because the role modeling is totally different. The story around the cultural significance of this event is totally different. The formal mechanisms, you'll get thrown out of the opera. In this particular example, you probably have the capability and skills to do either one. <laughs> but the idea is too many organizations, employees during change are caught somewhere between a football stadium and an opera house. And it's a totally confusing place to be. The story says football stadium, but the formal reinforcement and the consequences say opera house. And the role modeling says opera house, but then the training I'm getting that I'm going to says football stadium. So the idea is working all four together to make it clear, hey, on this mindset and these set of behaviors that relate to it, we're in an opera house now, people. Social norms, even if you don't have a rule, I mean, in some cases you have a rule. In some cases you don't have a rule, you've just been told, we don't do that around here. It's unbelievable how over generations of employees that impacts how people behave. It, it's striking me there's a, there's a common theme here around asking people, well, how do you find out what mindsets are? You need to ask people. You need to do structured interviews, laddering techniques, these kind of things. But ultimately, you need to talk to the people to understand what the people are feeling and how they're thinking. You just have to do that. You, you do, and you have to have an approach, a methodology, an expertise to not just tell them the time by looking at their watch. Yeah. Because the, the, what gets exciting is people could never pick the management practices that typically the predictive analytics will show are the management practices to focus on. People typically are not conscious of the mindsets that are kind of underlying the culture that are the unlocks. And when you elevate these, what you get is this really wonderful feeling in the organization. And Bill's felt it too. It's this, finally, we've surfaced the real stuff. We're actually having real conversations. One thing I want to add about that, because look, there's a legacy of, you know, old human dynamics consultation or even some of the process consultation. A lot of that would have been divorced from the performance side. We used to do a ton of safety work and reliability work in plants. And sometimes you'd find organizations that had allowed themselves to fall into this idea that cost effectiveness was the enemy of safety and reliability. It's the classic false trap, you know. And sometimes you'd start a conversation and say, well, you know, the safest plant is the one that's not running. Surely we don't mean that. So, but are we really saying we need a plant that's safe, makes products reliably, on spec, and actually has an opportunity to turn a fair margin to justify the capital? Because in those places, it's like a couple billion dollars of capital on the ground. Just trying to get them the handle that we're not willing to sacrifice, but there is an and. It's not an either or. That kind of hints at a sort of failure mode here that, you know, e even if an organization, um, senior, senior management accepts that they need to be working on the performance side and the health side, they've got to be working at it together, right? These aren't two separate work streams with separate teams that aren't talking to each other. Is that something that we see in practice? Yes, it absolutely is. And it's a huge failure mode. When performance is thought of as that's what our business leaders are going to do and health is, hey, can the head of HR sponsor that? And it's run largely as that's the HR stuff and yeah. this is the business stuff. That never ends never up works. going well. Starts all, out fine. It's all it business. Well. It's all business. And it's an integrated steering committee approach, sponsorship approach. And again, nothing against HR. HR has a wonderful role to play in all this. But it's not solely the domain of HR. And nor is performance solely the domain of you know the CFO, for example. In fact, anymore now, when we see the setup, the antenna immediately go up and go, no, no, actually, we'd like you to put a BU leader in there with the head of HR. And by the way, we'd like the head of talent to be over in those two performance initiatives because, frankly, you have no idea how you, people are going to start doing that. In the beginning of these large-scale change programs, there typically is a health team and a performance team working together. But by the time you get to that phase three where you're architecting the program, 
And by the time you get into the act stage, for sure, it's actually indistinguishable to the employees who are experiencing this, what's performance and what's health. In those four levers for shifting mindsets that Bill talked about, you literally would take all of your performance initiatives and you would ask all of those to build into their plans, how are you improving our health using these levers to get at those practices and those mindsets that we need? And then it turns out the work of performance does the work of health for you. It's And by the way, everyone experiences on how health can actually improve performance because like, wow, this is actually going really well and we're getting great results. Who would have thought? So if, if you had to think about other failure modes, even for organizations who on the surface get that they've got to be working on two sides at once, they've got to be addressing performance and health, what are the things where you see organizations typically will go wrong? Two come to mind for me. One is if you get a, an economic shock during the period of the effort and you resort to type. You know, the first time you have to announce a surprise, you know, to the markets and you go, okay, we're stopping all this and we're going just to cost or something else. So you, you deviate, right? That would be one. The other, I think, is tolerance of a leader who is just not living up to it. They know where they all are. Everyone knows everything, particularly leaders who aren't really living up to the, you know, what, what we're calling here the health aspiration. They're just not behaving the way that you want. Well, and this is the role modeling, right? hundred percent. You will immediately signal this really isn't that important, right? And that, those two, I mean, there are others, but those two for me, the first test, because the test is always going to come. Yep. And will you carry people who aren't living up to what it means to be a leader in that organization? Yeah, and I'll just add a couple. Um, first of all, we really hoped in a way, because we thought it would be counterintuitive and kind of push the envelope that we could say that actually, you know, the role modeling of the CEO or the top team is far less important than what we all thought. It turns out it's just as important as what we all thought, if not more. We sometimes describe it as the gear reduction theory of management, which is you've got a big gear that can turn one direction, one way, one click, and then a, a littler gear beneath it, you know, at the next level, and it kind of goes three or four clicks, and you go down, the next one's spinning, and you go all the way to the front line, and you've got this just because one, you know, kind of little decision or comment yeah, up at the top. the signaling. And, and then the, the CEO or the senior leader kind of decides to go backwards one click. I actually didn't mean that. And so the shearing beneath it, you know, and it's a visual metaphor for the the power of senior leadership in organizational life. And so senior leader not being on board is a massive failure mode. The second failure mode, it's to what extent can you make it personal for people? Make the change personal. And what do we mean by that? Let me give you an example. If you ask men age 20 to 30, are you in the top half of male athletic capability? You know, 93% will say, yeah, this guy, you know. Um, And that makes sense, actually, because people have a natural self-serving bias to think they're already doing what needs to be done. So you want more knowledge sharing, more customer focus, better performance management? Yeah, we do in the organization. So, Scott, how are you going to change? Oh, I'll I'll change, but secretly I'm kind of like, I already got this. It's everyone else's problem. It's the, you know, if they would just change. So how do you shift it to, hey, for things to change, first I must change? How do I get it to be my role needs to be to be even better because I need to role model the ability to change, not just that which we need to change to. All of the kind of blame mentality or below the line mentality for those who are kind of steeped in the language can be let go of. And instead of an above the line, a fully accountable, more, hey, if it is to be, it's up to me type mindset takes over. When that is in place, that's a massive accelerant. 
what is the change? What does it mean to me and the legacy I want to leave? And what's my role in creating a trust-based environment versus not? And to what extent do I operate below the line or out of blame and out of fear versus above the line, out of passion and opportunity and hope? Sounds super soft, but I'll tell well, you what, super heavy impact. Yeah, um, I mean, it's uh, I mean, it's very, very adjacent to mindsets, and it's almost like the the ultimate existential mindset that you 100%. bring to how you live and how you work. Hundred percent. If you think about what we're asking of people in the aspiration setting, we're asking them to suborn what they might have done on their own if it was just their own backyard towards this aspiration for the whole entity. Then we're asking them to ask, not just assume they know why the people around them and their employees are behaving the way they are. And then we, on this leadership part, we're saying, we'd like you to have the humility to acknowledge that you're, in some ways you might not be good enough right now. Talk about it and then have the courage to do something about it. Huge unlock, but it is not by rote and it's not just a harder and faster of yesterday's plan. You know, the first conversation we often have with CEOs is around this, do you have the humility and do you have the courage to pull this off? That conversation is always a, a robust and exciting one. And quite frankly, we've walked away from a few situations where it hasn't felt like there's a path there. Um, but those two features at the senior levels in particular are, are critical. All right. Well, thank you for a fascinating and important conversation, Bill and Scott. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And thanks as always to you, our listeners, for tuning in to this episode of the McKinsey Podcast. If you want to learn more, please do check out the book, Beyond Performance 2.0 or visit us at mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook. <laughs>